Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 27. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And, at, uh, and they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed because... It was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And, as he, sought to, and he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and welcomed them. He welcomed them, and he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now as the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said, Send the crowd away into the surrounding villages and countryside to find some lodging to get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. (coughs) Excuse me. But others say, Elijah, and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone should come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, the glory of God the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. I want to speak to you this morning on this topic, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, we we come to you before you in need of you. We ask that you would indeed move this morning in us, reveal to us the meaning of this passage, that we might apply it to our lives. 
pray that the Spirit would do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you've ever met someone who has changed your life. Eddie has. Yesterday, I was able to witness Eddie propose to his fiance. Where is Eddie? Where's he at? There he is. It's a good thing you didn't leave, brother. You'd be really embarrassed right now. Although you wouldn't even know. <laughs> Maybe you're embarrassed right now. Um, there's something, you know, if, if, you're, if you're married or single or divorced or, you know, content with being single, it doesn't matter. There's a sense in which when we see somebody, a man propose to a woman, there's something that puts a smile on our face. And I think that's because human love or marriage, it, it, it pictures something bigger than itself. I think there's something intrinsic in us that, that says, yes, that's good. That's right. That's beautiful. While we should not idolize marriage, marriage does picture for us the greater relationship that each one of us have with the Lord Jesus Christ. A relationship that is so beautiful, that is so profound, that is so remarkable. It pales every other human relationship. If you are a Christian, you are someone who has met Jesus and been changed. Encountering Christ, His true identity, it changes your identity. It changes you. That's where we want to go this morning with this passage. Now, the previous passage in chapter 8 ended with the uh, resurrection, uh, the raising of a dead girl. And you can only imagine how word begins to spread when a dead girl is raised to life. In verses 1 through 6, Jesus spreads the word of himself even more so as he commissions his 12 disciples on this missionary journey to go with nothing other than a message and to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and to heal, which is to, uh, to say, perform the signs that confirm the gospel message. Wherever you go in all of these villages, some are going to accept you, stay there. Some people are going to reject you. If they reject you, shake the dust off your feet and keep it moving. Now, they come back after the missionary journey, and they, they, they are catching up with Jesus. During this time, rumors begin to spread. This character, Herod, comes back into our story. You might remember Herod as the man who locked up John the Baptist. John the Baptist spoke out against Herod's adulterous relationship with his brother's wife, Herodias. And so Herod had John locked up. Herodias wanted John's head on a platter, and Herodias gets what Herodias wants. So his head was chopped off and given to Herodias. Now Herod is a little concerned because there are rumors that this person who uh, is becoming famous that we know as Jesus, there's rumors that this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Other people are saying that he is Elijah, the old prophet, who's back. Or others say he's 
He's some other unknown prophet from the Old Testament that has been raised to new life. The crowds are interested in him. Everybody is talking about who Jesus is. To the point where in scene 3, verses 10 through 17, Jesus and his disciples can't find any alone time. They go to Bethsaida and they're followed by thousands upon thousands of people. And Jesus is preaching to them and this sets the stage for a miracle, the only miracle outside of the resurrection that is recorded in all four Gospels, and that is the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus takes five loaves and two fish, and he breaks it and feeds 5,000. It's hilarious reading modern-day explanations of the feeding of the 5,000. Modern-day so-called theologians who say, well, probably what happened was he started feeding some people with the five loaves and two fish, and others were moved with compassion and took that same kind of uh, model, and they began sharing their own lunch, and there was enough for everybody to be fed as everybody shared their lunches. Others speculate and say, well, I think what happened was Jesus broke the five loaves and two fish into 5,000 little pieces, and sort of like a, a communion supper, he gave everybody just a taste, and it was a m- m- memorial uh, meal. Why is it that people speculate and come up with all of these different ways to explain the feeding of the 5,000? Well, it's because miracles just don't happen, right? I mean, that's their mentality. Why is that their mentality? It's because Jesus cannot really be who Jesus says he is, and that is the Son of God. Even for modern theologians today, it comes down to Who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? Meaning, if Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, then Jesus certainly could take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 people to where, in verse 17, it says they were satisfied. I've never been satisfied with a little taste. The question, the pervading question in this text is this question on the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? And at the climax of our story, that is the question that Jesus asks his disciples as they come back from their missionary journey. Who is Jesus? Everybody has an opinion today on who Jesus is. And everybody wants Jesus to sort of be a certain kind of Jesus, to meet their particular needs. And so we present different Jesuses, if you would, in order to attract certain people. Meaning if Jesus is a warlord, then those who are suffering under cruel governments just might embrace him. If Jesus is a community advocate, then those living in deplorable housing situations might embrace him. If Jesus is an entrepreneur, then business owners and overachievers just might embrace him. If Jesus is a therapist, then those who are trying to get past their bad feelings just might embrace him. 
But what if Jesus is not the warlord, community advocate, entrepreneur, or therapist we want him to be? What if Jesus' identity is defined in the suffering Savior? In the cross, one who went to battle against sin and death. What if his identity is one who forgives your sins and promises you of life after this life? Well, too many today would say, but that's not what I feel I need. You see, we define who Jesus is often based on how we feel, what we think we need in a Savior. God doesn't give us what we think we need. God gives us what we really need. And we can praise God for that. God defines who Jesus is. And so let's take a few minutes and look at this text And let's discover who he is, his identity. Number one, Jesus' identity. First, we have to understand, is misunderstood by the crowds. Jesus' identity is misunderstood by the crowds. Whenever we get into election season, we're always talking about presidential poll numbers. Does anybody ever get annoyed hearing about the polls? Most Americans I know get annoyed not just hearing about the polls, but how politicians are overly obsessive about their poll numbers and what people think of them. Now, they're overly obsessive about this because of pride, because they want to win votes. Jesus is actually interested in the poll numbers for an entirely different reason. Jesus is interested in the polls because he wants to make a point about how people are missing him, misunderstanding him. And so if you look at your text in chapter 9, Jesus asks his disciples after they come back from their journey what the crowds, what people are saying about them. Who, he says in verse 18, do the crowds say that I am? And the point is this, Jesus is misunderstood by the crowds. The the, the response is that there are these rumors going around about who Jesus is. Some say that he is John the Baptist. Some say that he is Elijah. Other people say that he is some unknown prophet that's been raised from the dead. And then Jesus, in verse 20, rephrases the question, and I like how he turns it, and he looks right at his disciples, and he says, but who do you say that I am? In the original language, you is emphatic, which means that's the emphasis. That's where we want to place our emphasis as we read this text and as we think about this. Who do you say? That Jesus is. The crowds rarely get information right. Crowds twist facts. Public opinion is the worst place to go if you want to find something out. If you ask around today, who is Jesus? You're going to hear some people say, 
Jesus is a prophet. And Jesus certainly was a prophet. But is Jesus merely a prophet? Who do you say Jesus is? The crowds say that Jesus is a cultural revolutionary who's coming to overturn societies. And Jesus certainly is coming to overturn human government at some point. But is that merely who Jesus is? A cultural revolutionary. Who do you say Jesus is? Others say that Jesus was a legendary teacher. And Jesus certainly was the greatest teacher of all time. But is Jesus merely a legendary teacher? Who do you say that Jesus is? Others say Jesus is a white guy who was used by white guys to oppress people groups. Now, as a white guy, I'll be the first to admit that Jesus was perverted and misused by a lot of white folks to oppress people groups. But is that who Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? For most, I think, for most of the crowds, Jesus is a joke. Jesus is a meme. Jesus is on a t-shirt. He's in a cartoon. Jesus, for most, I think, is a very common, familiar face that we like to laugh at. Who do you say Jesus is? Listen, if you want to know who Jesus is, you can't go to the crowds. The reason we've got a lot of perverted ideas of who Jesus is in churches is because we're listening to the crowds more than we're listening to the Word of God. The reason we've got Aryan Jesus or racist Jesus or, 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 or uh, business guru Jesus or community development Jesus or Republican Jesus or Democrat Jesus is because we're listening to the crowds. And the crowds are defining for us who Jesus is, as opposed to going to the Word of God and understanding that God defines who Jesus is. And notice, I didn't say, who do you theologically think Jesus is? Because there's a lot of dudes out there that can spit a lot of theology. They know a lot about Jesus. They are very knowledgeable. They are very smart. They are thinkers. But they don't know Jesus. There is a difference between knowing a lot about Jesus to where you could actually get up and preach about Jesus, but you don't really know Jesus. You've never been transformed by Jesus. And so I ask the question, who do you say Jesus is? The crowds misunderstand Jesus. Secondly, the identity of Jesus is revealed by God himself. Jesus' identity is revealed by God himself. I saw this video on Twitter this last week of this older man who had been colorblind, like black and white colorblind his whole life. 
And his family gave him a pair of corrective lenses. And he put these lenses on, and he could see the world in color. And it brought him to tears. He was filled with great emotion. Listen, if you are colorblind, the colorblind cannot reveal colors to you. The colorblind would not be able to understand a world of color if all they see is black and white. Color must be revealed to the blind. Don't you understand the blind leading the blind leads you into a pit? Don't you understand that if you're blind, something has to be revealed to you? Don't you understand that if we are indeed spiritually dead, and Jesus is a spiritual figure, then we must have something revealed to us that we could not know on our own. And so that's why I make this point. God reveals Jesus' identity. The crowds miss it. God reveals it. Now, where do I get this? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, we see the same story where Peter confesses what he's about to confess right here. Let me actually read it to you first from Luke chapter 9. Jesus asks, who do the crowd say? They give their response. He turns to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter speaks up as is characteristic of Peter. And Peter says, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. Christ means Messiah. What Peter is saying is that Jesus is the Messiah of God. That is to say, God who revealed to the Jews in the Old Testament that there is a chosen one that is going to come who will redeem Israel, who will reverse the curse, who will in some fashion, it was unclear, it was shadows, but in some fashion, he is going to come and bring ultimate deliverance for the people of God. Peter's saying that the Messiah of God is standing in front of us. This is massive. The chosen one who is going to deliver the people of God from the curse of sin is standing flesh and blood in front of us. And in Matthew 16, 17, Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. But my Father in heaven... God chooses to whom he will reveal that information. Knowing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah is God's grace to you. God chose to reveal this to you. Think about this, church. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of God in everything that we're about to discuss here, that is because God, before the foundations of the earth, elected you and chose to reveal this information to you so that you might be saved. To be able to declare Jesus is God's Messiah then should draw us into the greatest expression, the highest expression of worship, and simultaneously to the lowest bowing of humility as we recognize that we are believing and declaring something that is only ours because of God's grace to you. God reveals 
His identity. The identity of Jesus. Now, as we go on, we can only understand what it means that Jesus is God's Messiah by His mission. So thirdly, Jesus' identity is understood by His mission and what He has come to do. Let's think for a moment of crucifixion. Julius Caesar, emperor of Rome. In in his early years, Julius Caesar was kidnapped by a band of pirates. And they demanded 12,000 pieces of gold as a ransom. For 40 days, Julius Caesar sat with these pirates. And he looked at them and he said, I am, when I am free, I'm going to hunt you down and I'm going to crucify each one of you. And he said it so often it became a joke. Well, 40 days later he was freed and you know what the first thing Julius Caesar did? He hunted down the band of pirates and he crucified every one of them. Crucifixion was very known, well known in Rome. It was the invention of Rome. And that was the Roman mentality, that was the idea behind crucifixion. It is a punishment that is reserved for the worst of criminals. For the kind of person who would be a pirate that captures the emperor. Jesus is about to talk about the Son of Man himself being crucified. This would have been unthinkable. This is why Jesus says something that actually for us it sounds weird. After Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, in verse 21, he tells them, don't tell anybody this. It's kind of weird. It seems like Jesus would want them to tell people that he is the Christ. But the answer is simple, and it's actually right where he goes next, and that is this. It's because the disciples themselves don't yet understand what Messiah means. The the crowds certainly do not understand what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. For them, they would make Jesus into the kind of Messiah that they want, that they feel they need. What they felt they needed was deliverance from Rome. They're not ready yet to have the message that Jesus is the Messiah because they would twist that. They wouldn't understand that. He has not come to get rid of Rome in the moment. And he shows us, in contrast, what he has come to do. Look at the next verses. What has Jesus come? What does it mean that he is the Messiah? Verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. We cannot understand the definition of Christ without understanding the cross of Christ. We cannot understand what it means for him to be the chosen one, the Messiah, without understanding what happened, 
when Jesus was rejected by the elders, scribes, and chief priests and was hung on a cross and raised again three days later from the dead. Uh, to understand Jesus' identity apart from his work on Calvary is impossible. We understand his identity as we come to see the suffering Savior. We understand who he is as we encounter Christ on the cross. Christ hanging on the cross, it overturns every notion of success that we cling to. Everything that we believe to be right and good about the way that I want to live my life is overturned and challenged as I gaze upon Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. He died on the cross to take the penalty for your sin. He died on the cross to take the curse of sin, and that is death. Yes, Jesus is a warrior. Yes, He is going to war against an empire, but it's not the empire of Rome. He's going to war against the empire that is truly haunting. The empire that you cannot see. And that is the empire of sin and death. The, the Son of Man, the Messiah has come to fight the real war that needs to be fought. And He will fight that war through laying down His own life and dying in our place and taking on our penalty and rising from the dead as a victor, as a champion. He rises and He stands and He calls to us to turn from our sins and to trust in Him. And I invite every one of you today, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, keep trusting in Jesus Christ. If you're just now becoming a Christian, trust in Jesus Christ. And you are a victor with Him. Number four, Jesus' identity is embraced by His people, us. Even when it costs us everything. Jesus' Identity is embraced by us even when it costs us everything. Charles Spurgeon said, There are no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers here below. Let me read that again. There are no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross-bearers here below. What is Spurgeon saying? Spurgeon is saying to be a crown-wearer in heaven means that we are carrying some type of cross here on earth. It means that to follow Jesus is going, not might, but is going to cost you everything already has. It does. Earlier in our text in verse 5, remember when Jesus commissioned His disciples on this missionary journey? He says to them, if you're rejected, shake off the dust from your feet. 
and move on. The ancient rabbis would teach that the, the dust from Gentile countries was contaminated. And if you walked into a Gentile country and you're coming back into Israel, that you should take off your sandals and shake off the dust before you come back into Israel so that you don't bring the pollution of the Gentiles into the Holy Land. Now what's interesting is this, is as Jesus is sending his disciples out on this missionary journey, they're going to villages in Israel. And what he's saying is this, is if they reject me, shake off the dust as you leave. That's a curse against them. It's a sign against them. It's a testimony against them. What he's saying is this, is if they reject me, then they are no different than the heathen Gentile nations who are polluted and contaminated. Also, uh, uh, earlier in our text, we saw Pilate. And Pilate's, the, the way he talked about John's beheading, he, he's so cool and casual about it. He says, John, I beheaded. Who is this guy? Even the way he talks about it shows how horrifying and evil this character Herod, Herod is. And in a sinister way, he wants to find out who this Jesus is. My point is this. As his disciples were rejected, as Herod rejected John the Baptist and would probably like to kill Jesus, as the elders, chief priests, and scribes are going to reject Jesus, you too will be rejected by this world. That's the point. We live in a world that is not set toward Jesus, but we live in a world that is set against Him. And so this is why at the climax of our text, Jesus applies all of this, looking directly at his disciples, and he says this. I'm just going to read it. Verse 23 through 27, 26. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the God of the Father and of the holy angels. And the glory of the Father and the holy angels. What does it mean to take up your cross daily? They knew very well what that meant. I imagine a man in one of these villages in Israel condemned to die. The Roman soldiers come in. They take him out of his prison cell. And there on the ground lies a cross. And the soldiers stand and look at this man and wait for him to pick it up. What does it mean for him to take up his cross? 
he takes it up and he puts his cross on his shoulder and with the Roman soldiers, he walks out of the village and up that dusty old path. This is what it meant to take up your cross. To take up your cross is a one-way trip. He's not coming back to the village. I don't think you understand what Jesus is saying here when he says, take up your cross. Because so often, in our, the way we live our lives and think about our spiritual lives, we think of following Jesus and enjoying the world as a back-and-forth reality. We take our trip to church and bear our cross there, and then we come home. And that has nothing to do with what we just did over here on Calvary. No, taking up your cross is a one-way trip. There's no coming back. There's no turning around. It's a one-way trip. And it's a trip, he says, that we are to do daily. Which means every day we're to take a one-way trip with Jesus Christ to our death. Let's, let's not be apologetic about the fact that Christianity is about death. It's about dying to everything that I know. Because taking up my cross is a one-way trip. It's about sacrificing my desires in order to love my church family and to love my physical family and to love my lost neighbors because taking up your cross is a one-way trip. It's about uh, sacrificing and, and dying to these unruly passions that I have and these ungodly attractions because taking up a cross is a one-way trip. It's about no longer dying to the fact that I love to cut corners at my job and, and cheat to get ahead. Because taking up the cross is a one-way trip, and it means everything. When your friends deny you because you embrace Jesus, do you have a wimpy faith? that denies Jesus in that moment. Oh, I pray that you do not because Jesus says, I will deny you before my Father if you deny me before man. Don't play with Jesus. You deny Christ before man, you will perish. Jesus says you embrace me in, in spite of the rejection. You embrace me in spite of the denial. I embrace you. Why? It's because following Jesus is to take up our cross. And to take up our cross is a one-way trip. We die to our cultural preferences and our personality types because taking up your cross is a one-way trip. We die to our temper. We die to our uh, desire to get high, to escape this world. We die to our lust. We die to our sin. 
We die to our irresponsibility and our defensiveness and our arrogance and our pride because there is no going back. Taking up a cross daily means every day I take a one-way trip away from my old life of everything I know and toward Jesus Christ. The point of this text is summed up well in that old chorus, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. We die to live. We die to this world because we realize that this world is quickly fading. Like the stage I'm standing on, the foundation is not very good. We live in a world of destruction. And everything we cling to, and everything we believe to be success, as defined by this world, is shaky. And so we die to it. And what we find is true life. Real life. Life, yes, spiritually realized now as we enjoy all of the beauty of God's creation, as we enjoy the Creator more than we enjoy the creation, as we live with joy in this world amidst suffering. But we run. We run to the city that has a foundation, the city that has roots that will never die. A city that will last. We die so that we might live. Jesus, who is He? Who do you say He is? He is the Christ of God. You have encountered one this morning who has changed you. His Identity has changed your identity. My brothers and sisters, be changed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Jesus Christ gives us real life. Life beyond the shakiness. Life beyond the dark clouds. Life beyond the suffering. We thank You for the forgiveness of sins through His vicarious substitutionary death on the cross. God, I pray that we this morning will cling to Christ running to the city that has foundations. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.